You're listening to How to Stan, the podcast all about both specific fandoms and fandom culture as a whole. For more information about the show and the other show that I do, 17 Karat K-Pop, visit 17karatkpop.weebly.com. You can also go to 17karatkpop.weebly.com backslash how to stand for more specific information about this podcast. Enjoy the show. There are a few key distinctions between types of Disney fans. You have Disney fans, and then you have Disney theme park fans. Of course, they have a lot in common, but also some very different subcultures. And the same goes for Disney World fans and Disneyland fans. And it's important to understand these subcultures if you want any idea, really, about the bigger picture they show, what kind of microcosm they are for, what Disney fans are all about, and why they truly believe in Disney magic and the happiest place on earth. Today we're going to dive into the history of Disney fan clubs and how this unique culture has changed over time, focused on Disneyland. Because a key difference in the subcultures is that Disney World is definitely more of a tourist spot for people from around the world. Disneyland is smaller both physically and in terms of the locations of its diehard fans. It's a much more localized fan experience where many fans drop by all the time casually, like they're going to the mall or something. It's kind of in the neighborhood. Plus, the quirky personalities of creative people that define California are just ticked up a notch in a natural fit for joining a Disney enthusiast club. These clubs have ranged over time from four members to over 100 members, and the amount of clubs reportedly that exist varies widely, from some sources saying over 90, to some saying just over 20, to some saying over 100, but tons of these Disney clubs have sprouted up. So here's the timeline of how this went down. The seeds were really planted for this in the 90s, when Disneyland introduced a new annual pass option that would make it easier for lower income people to frequently go to the park. That was also the time period where they started further focusing on promoting and creating youth-centered attractions at the parks. I know it's weird, I guess it was a new approach for them. So youth focus and new pass system combined to cause a big surge in teenagers showing up in huge packs to go to the park. They became known as the Disneyland locals often in a derogatory way, and they were viewed as these vandals, these roughhousers, etc. In 2011, the nature of these groups really started to change, and they started being able to show their many differences in diverse identities online. Thanks to apps like Instagram rising in popularity, Disney fan clubs both grew in size and number, and in terms of their sense of officiality, they really started truly forming a key identity they stuck with and found a new way to streamline official applications to enter their clubs through social media outreach. In April of 2013, one of the earliest Disney fan club blogs slash fan sites, MiceChat, made the first official reference to Disney fan clubs. So that was in April 2013. 11 months later, March 2014, by then over 20 fan clubs had reportedly started. There are both a ton of unique differences between the various fan clubs and tons of commonalities. 
Number one, these Disney-obsessed people make this a hobby and a time commitment. They go to the theme park together a lot. They often attend regular club meetings together that are sometimes not mandatory, but heavily encouraged, and it's frowned upon if you don't show up and make time for this club. These groups are okay with the gang term they're given sometimes. Sometimes they're called the Disney gangs, especially because groups like the Main Street Elite wear those biker gang-esque vests when they're walking through the park together, but they prefer to use the word club, and they treat each other like a family. They don't want to look too intimidating. They like to just stick to the technical definition of a gang, people with a common goal or interest. Second big takeaway, they see themselves as stewards of their park. They truly love not just Disney and what it stands for, but what it really is physically in the world. They like to pick up litter when they see it, and they like to yell at people who cut the line or mistreat employees. They like to look out for one another and the park. Third big thing to know about them is that social media plays conflicting roles. Because like I said before, for them it serves as a recruitment tool. And it's a way for different enthusiasts from different clubs to connect and bond. But at the same time, a lot of the clubs do not have a massive online presence. It's there to help them out but it's not a huge part of what they do. As I was researching for this episode, the information I could find about these clubs was there. It wasn't hidden, but it was minimal. So I relied largely on previous media reports instead because these clubs just don't post the nitty gritty of their daily life. Rhiannon, who started The Wonderlander, said, quote, social clubs aren't about being an online presence. We're present in the parks in person. This is where we enjoy ourselves and love to get together, unquote. And they do take it super seriously to be out there in person at the parks. There's an extensive application process where you have to prove you deserve membership. Some examples, the Wonderlanders is a club where they have a three-month period where they're going to see if you gel with the group, if you're vibing well with them. The members that are there already will vote on if you should become the next new member. The Neverlanders are a group who, they just try to get to know a member online. And after online interactions, if those go well, then they decide to move into in-person meetings and interactions. The Hitchhikers are a group who are invite only, and you apply via Facebook or Instagram. They are called Hitchhikers because they are referencing the characters in The Haunted Mansion Ride. And they describe their application process as, quote, Sometimes we have a formal vote for new members, but the basic rule of invite is when we feel like we cannot live without the mortal, talking to them daily, already feeling like they are a part of our hitchhiking family, going on member outings and inviting mortals, or if mortals can't make it, everyone is mentioning how much they wish they were there, then we choose to present them with a formal invite, which is a death certificate, and it is usually presented in a very cool way and personalized to the new member, unquote. The Main Street Elite has potential recruits shadow longer-term members to see if they'd be a good fit. It's a lot like a sorority or fraternity thing, but without the hazing. So those are some big takeaways about this group. They get together for trips to the theme park and meetings. They view themselves as stewards of the park. Social media is both important and not too important to them. They have an extensive application process. It's a big time commitment, and lastly, 
there are tons of them. Some of those differences are demographics. Some are based on how each one is named after a ride or a certain character. And it's also noticeable right away which group they belong to because of their uniforms. Notably, the status symbols they acquire through collectible exclusive pins. These groups include Walt's Misfits, Mickey's Outlaws, the White Rabbits, the Hidden Mickeys, Sons of Thunder, the Jungle Cruisers, Disney Resort Imbeciles, Mickey's Little Monsters, Sons of Anakin, Captain EO's Ragtag Band, Walt's Wanderers, and the Main Street Fire Station. Some have very different purposes, more demographic than anything else, like Walt's Wanderers was created by a 22-year-old and is a club she started for out-of-state fans of Disneyland. There's the Pix Pack, which specializes in Pixar enthusiasm, and very cutely, they have trivia questions. And so if you get one of those right, they give you a button kind of like the Boy Scout badges in the movie Up. There's the Wonderlanders. The Wonderlanders range in age from 3 to 55. There's the Hitchhikers, the first known Northern California-based group from 2013. They were founded by a couple who got the idea after they met with the Neverlanders. And they decided they were going to create their own group that would do more than just go to the parks. But they meet up at least three times a year, and they also have movie nights, pool parties, etc. This is a family group, and they like to take out one family at a time to go to the park with them, instead of everyone coming as a massive collective. They also have young members called the Little Hitchhikers, which I thought was super cute. There's the Main Street Elite, which is by far the most popular. It was founded in 2003. It was started by this guy who goes by Capin, C-A-P apostrophe N, and it was created in response to the Neverlanders as well, for thinking they were not inclusive enough. And so the Main Street Elite became the faux biker gang, faux tough group. Some argue the first official Disney club was the Black Death Crew. They started in March of 2012, and their whole thing was wearing all black to the park. But the Neverlanders often get credit for being the first group instead, because they really became more of a club, not just one shtick, but many different ways of showing off their club affiliation to the next level like their personalized vests and patches, and their philosophy. This group, the Neverlanders, was founded by a couple, Angel and Cindy Mendoza, in 2012. And they were inspired after they were listening to a fan's podcast, where someone went off against that payment plan that was implemented to help lower-income attendees come more frequently. They said it would basically ruin the reputation of the park, it would bring in quote-unquote unsavory attendees, and so Angel and Cindy thought, this is not in the spirit of Disney. Disney is for everyone. They said, quote, They spoke about tattooed people, younger people. It hit the wrong chord with us because we are payment plan users and tattooed. Disneyland was created to provide entertainment for anyone who wanted it. So we talked about bringing strangers through social networks together with a common interest in and love for the park, Walt, and all things Disney. Unquote. So in sum... These different groups formed for different reasons, but ultimately to show their love for Disney and then actively act on that love for the parks and try to keep the Disney magic and the spirit of Disney alive in their own way with like-minded people. Now, as sunshiny as all of this sounds, 
there are some incidents that have happened with these clubs and fights. First of all, there's the criticism they get from some people who claim they make them uncomfortable. Some guests say that these giant packs of people, often with a biker gang type vests, just make people uncomfortable. Then you have groups with millennials and older walking around, not with a kid, just by themselves at Disney. People are very weirded out by it. You have people that are going to link some argue maybe overboard to show their love for Disney. One woman recently opened up to BuzzFeed about how she chose Animal Kingdom over a reconciliation with her boyfriend. Quote, as devastating as that was, all I could say and all that mattered was that I was going to Animal Kingdom with or without him. Unquote. There's also a lot of quote-unquote Disney bounding, a term used to describe how you skirt the rules at Disney by dressing up as your favorite Disney character in plain clothes, for lack of a better term. Just putting together what's in your closet to put together basically a low-budget costume for your favorite character. Because technically, if you're over the age of 14, except on Halloween, of course, you're not allowed to wear a full character costume to Disney. So that's why the vests and pins really started becoming a big symbol for these groups to identify themselves, because it's a way of kind of Disney bounding. It's a way to kind of show their identity as Disney fans and still abide by the rule of no full costume. So aside from claims of discomfort, there has also been actual discomfort and intense conflict in two big moments. One incident was the Yippies in 1970. So quick background, the Yippies is the Youth International Party. It's an offshoot of the free speech movement from the 60s, and it was officially founded in December 1967. The Yippies were known for doing tons of political gimmicks to get attention, like really out there political stunts, where maybe you didn't know what their motive was, but the goal ultimately was attention. They were very anti-government in some ways, if you've seen the recent movie, The Trial of the Chicago 7, that film is based on a yippie demonstration, a protest at the DNC in 68, when 10,000 people showed up to demonstrate outside the DNC. The live TV caught brutal beatings of protesters, and that's a true story. So when that happened, it left a bad reputation on Chicago for all the brutality caught on TV and the chaos that unfolded that day. And Disney feared a repeat of that when they found out there was going to be this big yippie powwow day at Disneyland. Tons of yippies were planning to make some big show at Disneyland. By the way, aside from the DNC demonstration, they've done things like endorse a pig for president. They actually did Pegasus the Immortal, they called this pig, in 1968. And the domestic pig they picked was actually arrested alongside some of the Yippies' mid-campaign announcement speech. Anyway, it's a long story. So, the Disney Park people really prepared hardcore for the Yippie Day. They really prepared their most experienced staff to be working the turnstiles. They actually shadowed people who they thought looked suspicious, which meant back then things like having colorful hair. Really just things that made you stand out in any way. Things that are probably pretty normal at the park on a daily basis now. But this was a different time. And they would pull them aside and whisper, you know, if you're a yippie, no antics today, we're watching you. They guarded the park, they circled the park. They were really, like, prepared for battle here. They even created a list of special radio codes they could use to signal that they needed backup if that time came. So 150 officers hid around the park, 
prepared. They expected way more to happen than what did. Out of the 27,000 people who came on what was called Yippie Day, only around 200 or 300 of them were considered officially Yippies. And throughout the day, the Yippies kept trying to rile people up, and it kind of flopped. Because they tried to do things like rip up flower beds and sneak dance on Main Street. They tried to climb up Captain Hook's pirate ship. They quote-unquote invaded Fort Wilderness and tried to replace the flag with a Yippie flag. They thought that would incite some people, but they chose to do that on the attraction Tom Sawyer's Island, which is an island. It's separated from the rest of the park, so it didn't really draw a ton of eyeballs. They actually also went to Main Street, started chanting, give me an F, give me a U, but then everyone around them somehow just started bursting into song. So that happens a lot at Disney. Wherever you are, they're probably about to burst into song and dance. So anyway, they tried a ton of different attention-grabbing antics. Didn't really cause bodily harm. They probably just annoyed and confused some passerby. But the vice president of operations did shut things down early that day, the minute something started to escalate which was when a yippie ripped up a banner and then someone got shoved and he was worried a full brawl would break out and shut it all down. So there was a little shoving after a banner was ripped. That was the extent of the violence and the park just shut down early. The guests who weren't yippies got refunds for the day and there were only 23 arrests, mostly minor like trespassing charges. Some of them actually tried to stay and hide past closing time. So, so this yippie day at Disney is a perfect example of some overreaction to the presence of the Disney clubs and how the fear generated around them making you uncomfortable is often just that, a fear, and nothing comes of it. The park feared a PR crisis, but actually they were praised for how quickly they shut down the violence. And since then, the members have pretty much done a good job keeping their reputation away from the yippie reputation. Some clubs have kicked out members, but only because you were mistreating staff at the park or doing something else viewed as un-Disney behavior. They do all sorts of things, like I said before, like pick up litter at the park. All these interviews with founders of these clubs mention some form of a rule like that. Like, we have a rule, respect the park, or our general rule is, you know, wish happy birthday to whoever has the birthday button on when they go to the park. Things like that. All really, really wholesome stuff. But people have wanted to see some drama, and it's actually been a lot of manufactured hype spread online about these groups. There was even a Twitter account created just to dunk on and fuel bad rumors about feuds between the clubs. When actually, these diverse fan clubs have actually time and time again met up at the park and said hi, been friendly when they pass each other. They even organized this big photo op once for this big all-clubs meet-up photo op. Rhiannon from The Wonderlander said, quote, There were two photographs taken, one in Disneyland and one in California Adventure, where over 100 members of at least five different clubs gathered to show unity. We wanted it to be an outward symbol for all those who really didn't understand what we were about. Unquote. The groups have also been super charitable. Walt Wanderers raised money for Toys for Tots. The Wonderlanders has teamed up several times for charity events with the Children's Hospital of Orange County. The Neverlanders have raised over $5,000 for that hospital. Pixpack shipped some supplies to the Philippines after they experienced a typhoon. The Main Street Elite helped raise money for the family of a member whose son had leukemia. 
They actually ended up raising over $4,000 for that family. And the captain said about that, quote, We put roofs over other members' heads. We help one another in financial trouble and drive hours on end to pick each other up. Anything you would do for your own family is what we do in this club. Having such great people and love in this group, what's the point if we can't pass it on? Unquote. Now, if you'll recall earlier in this episode, I said there were two big days where serious incidents really did occur that were troublesome, to say the least. There was the whole yippee fiasco that security was really extra about. And there was one more that I do want to call out that was not a manufactured, but a real drama. The two Disney clubs in this story are the White Rabbits and the Main Street Fire Station 55 Social Club. Main Street Fire Station for short, I guess. In the summer of 2016, the president of Main Street Fire Station, John Sarno, organized a charity walk to raise money for the families of firefighters who lost their lives in 9-11. About 340 people registered for his charity walk, which was right around his goal number, and he was very pleased. Disney officially approved the walk and were even going to offer security. Like I said, it was a charity walk, so any funds raised from participation, he was going to pass on to these families. And then Sarno claims that a week before the walk was scheduled, while he was at the park, a handful of white rabbits approached him, and they ordered him to pay them to be security at the event. They wanted $500 for it. He said, first of all, no, because $500 is too much. I'm guessing, but I'm pretty sure he said that. Second thing, though, he insisted was that he already had security, and any money, any financial profit he was going to get was going to go back to charity. He was not in this for the money. So Jacob Fight, the president of the White Rabbits, claimed no one could host an event at the park without their permission. He said, no, you can't do this charity walk. It's our park. We make the rules. But due to this spat, some registrants may have grown concerned about potential showdowns on charity walk day. And so some registrants did not show up. Also contributing to the lowered turnout was when this white rabbit president started smearing Sarno's reputation on social media, making all sorts of horrendous allegations. I will not repeat here. I'll keep the show rated G, but it was really nasty and unverifiable. He also tried intimidation and threats again in 2017 to stop Sarno from having a repeat walk. And when he found out that Sarno was going ahead with another walk, he made a two-hour-long podcast episode exposing Sarno, as he called it, claiming this event was a great big scam. It was not for charity. Don't support him. He then continued harassing him, and then Sarno claimed, due to this harassment continuing, he had to file a complaint with law enforcement and PayPal. He also claims that Fight had gone on to leak personal medical information about him which was illegal for him to access those private medical records. So he filed a lawsuit citing reputational damage, the hacking of those records, and cyberbullying. He has not returned to the park since the threats and intimidation from this white rabbit started. He said the threats just became too much, and no 9-11 walk has been authorized since. As much as he is a diehard Disney fan, he also cited Disney as liable for not stopping the abuse. And actually, over 2,000 lawsuits over time have been filed over issues at Disneyland since 1955. There are a lot of incidents that have been reported at the park 
some super casual, some more serious. And there are dark examples, of course, of mistreatment of employees at the parks, people viewing it as all a facade, all an act, marketing this manufactured happiest place on earth concept. There was a very dark moment in 2018 when a homeless janitor was found dead in his car. So then it begs the question, how do some people still see the innocent magic in Disney? Because there are these dark incidents that have happened, it would not be a full picture of these clubs if I only focused on the good in them. A lot of the people who have been interviewed about their Disney club membership or leadership reference Walt Disney and his ultimate philosophies and goals for the park. And so, as is with everything in life, this is not a black and white thing. Support Disney, don't support Disney. But rather than support Disney itself, these members, I think, more so support or have at least more unconditional love for what the park represents to them and Disney's original intent of the park as the happiest place on earth, as a place where families would come together to celebrate the good days and where magic can happen and people are just so happy everywhere. And the mistreatment of workers and things like that were not part of that vision. So what Disney has turned into is not what they support. They can have those complex feelings around something. There are aspects of being a supporter of all sorts of things. Companies, places, books, movies, TV shows, songs that may make you feel like a hypocrite for certain values in that work. But life is just very complex and nuanced, and so there needs to be a complex and nuanced way of talking about fandoms because each one really does have layers to it and can simultaneously be mad at a company and in love with what it's offering them. It's also the sense that they can make it better. This is not this inevitable bad fate for what they love. Because it's kind of a choose-your-own-adventure, add-your-own-contributions thing. As an LA Times piece put it, quote, A small thing perhaps, but one that turns any visit to a Disney park into something more akin to a game. In Disneyland's New Orleans Square, for instance, there is what appears to be a boarded-up tunnel, which many fans believe was a crypt designed to connect the storylines of Pirates of the Caribbean and the Haunted Mansion. Unlikely, but such minutois turn the park into more of an active experience, as the many fan websites prove. We are not simply spectators, we're players, exploring a world that has been crafted by master designers while concocting our own set of stories." Unquote. One man who was talking to reporters, he has visited the park 123 times in a year prior to COVID shutdowns, quote, "...the people are what make it magical." Everyone loves Disneyland for different reasons. At Disneyland, you are transported into a story. You become a part of the story. The park is yours for the taking. Are you going to use it as a ground for philanthropic efforts? Are you going to use it for roughhousing and mischief making? Are you going to use it to try to find Easter eggs and links between storylines in the park itself? It's up to you, and that is what excites people. It's the sense of adventure which connects with Walt's original purpose for Disney. A sense of tapping into that inner child that brings to you a sense of possibility and wonder, questions about everything, and this curiosity and imagination. There are a lot of ways, too, that the park has responded to certain issues fans have had with it. It used to be notably very, very 
anti-PDA for same-sex couples. But now they officially have gay days at Disney, where people get to show off their pride loud and proud. Tens of thousands of people show up for it. It's an official but unofficial event. So not officially put on by the park, but fans of the park started that. And it's turned into tens of thousands of people participating. So at the same time as Disney is this massive corporation, it's also a very interestingly grassroots level, bottom-up, countercultural fandom force who've embraced their kind of geeky outsider labels, embraced their inner child, and not seen it as a bad thing to embrace that inner child. And in a way, that's kind of keeping up with the times. Cosplay is so normalized now, as is, in general, things like gaming, things that are quote-unquote geeky. So people are kind of leaning into an outsider status, despite this being a giant company we're talking about. And those complexities, again, can coexist. As John Blackham put it, quote, I think sometimes in our society, in particular with pop justice, pop morals, there's sort of like this litmus test, where there's not a lot of room for nuance, not a lot of room for messy contradictions, where we want everything to be neat, ordered, and structured. So it's like Disney has bad facets to it, ergo Disney is bad, how can you still like it? You must not know these things, or you must also be, like, morally reprehensible. Believe me, most of us are well aware of the negative sides of Disney, and yet we see something in it that we have undiminished love for. Let people love what they love and do not assume they need waking up. And that's part of it. That was for that BuzzFeed piece, which is one of the sources I will link to, as I always do on my monthly newsletter. There are some psychological reasons why not everyone buys into the magic, a psych professor at USC, Irving Biederman, said, quote, One of the things I don't like about Disneyland is the design almost forbids surprises. If it's fake fish, there's no surprise. Once you get by the initial experience, one of its shortcomings is there's going to be no surprises, unquote. Biederman described the human mind as basically choosing just between a window facing a brick wall and the window that faces a beautiful beach. You're always going to pick the view of the beach. And so, if Disneyland is right around the corner from your house, and on the other corner is hanging out at, I don't know, the library, the flashier thing is getting more attention. The thing with a lot more to it. But then, you have people like fandom studies expert and clinical psychologist Andrea Letamendi, who sees Disney as just the right amount of sensory load. Not sensory overload, not too over the top for people to enjoy but just right to really stimulate all your senses, and really then, because of the lack of surprises, it actually appeals more. She argues, quote, Your brain comes into that place where another brain has done all the organization, all the super cohesiveness. So it's like surfing on a wave instead of surfing out to see against it, unquote. So it's just a stimulating experience where you can make magic, but they've also made some magic for you so you don't have to put tons of thought into it. But a lot of fans have put a lot of thought into it. When the park closed due to COVID in March of 2020, collectively with Disney World, over 28,000 jobs had been lost, and the closures were met with protests by some super fans. But others decided instead of physically protesting, they would just find ways to recreate Disney magic at home. So people took up things like Disney-themed cooking, Zoom trivia nights, movie nights, YouTube binges of fireworks displays and other memories of the park, 
costume making and showing off your costumes of Disney characters on social media, streaming Disney+. Plus. One woman for her birthday even posted a freestyle rap online called I Miss Disneyland. So people, again, have made it what they want. It's what they make of it, and that is where the magic comes. And magic, like anything in life, is actually more complex than you might think at first. So one of my big takeaways here is that there is not one big takeaway. These groups are trying to find a way to fit in and stand out, to make the park their own and embrace what it originally stood for, to be just their own quote-unquote geeky selves, and to make it cool to like Disney. And all of those things can happen at once. That summarizes this group. Further reading about them I will link to on my newsletter. Thank you all for listening to the show as always, and I'll talk to you all again soon.